Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, I didn't warn Sydney about this, but anyway, here goes. When Sydney was a little girl, just like her parents, she loved to watch television and would come in from school, get a snack and something to drink, and park herself on the couch in the living room. We went through various phases, the Elmo phase, the Curious George phase, the Backyardigans phase, which was my favorite, <laughs> and, oh, Cayo, the one we hated. This time of year, we were also treated to the Christmas version of Dora the Explorer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the regular Dora the Explorer episodes were actually pretty good. We, they were okay, you know? They changed just enough that they kept adults interested, right? But Dora's Christmas Carol Adventure was a two-hour episode, and Sydney loved it. And she wanted to watch it over and over and over again. So sometimes I would try to trick her <laughs> and shorten the story by starting it in the middle. <laughs> but I never got away with it. As she would say, no, start over. The beginning, the beginning. And once again, we would, agonizing for me, watch Dora's Christmas Carol Adventure. Multiple times. <laughs> From the very beginning. And that's where the writer of the Gospel according to Mark starts his story. Hmm. And we want to proclaim, no, that's not the beginning of the story. And that's not even fitting for this season. Come on, Mark, go back to the angels and the shepherds and the stars and the stables and mangers and all that good stuff. It's Christmas, for Pete's sake. And the last place we want to be in December is in the middle of some wilderness where someone is screaming at us about sin. But this is Mark's beginning. Hmm. Professor and President Matthew Meyer Bolton uh, did an amazing commentary on this text, and I credit him with just about everything I'm saying today. Amazing. In order to understand the story that Mark puts forth to us and what it has to do with the birth narratives of, that we find in Matthew and Luke um, with their mystical stories about a child born to redeem us, we have to unpack this odd story that we have just heard from Mark and if we're willing, contemplate what it means to us in this holy season of Advent and Christmas. Over the coming year, we're going to journey with Mark through this year and hear passages uh, of the Gospel of Mark. But today, we hear the opening words of this Gospel. And Later, we'll move through this 16 chapters more chronologically. 
Um, but this is a little bit like when a film starts with an arresting scene from late in the movie, right? And then it goes back and kind of gives you all, fills in all the stuff that leads you up to this amazing thing. Mark's gospel is a practical work of art in literature. It is layered with levels of meaning and it is grounded in Mark's immediate situation, but also in the grand sweep of our faith history. I want to remind you that Mark wrote during or just after the Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire in 70 AD. And that revolt resulted in the Romans coming in and crushing the people of Israel and destroying the temple. Consequently, Mark's story is written with that in mind, and it's sharp, and it's graphic, and the action is with, uh, Mark uses the word immediately throughout his writings. That word pops up as his most favorite word, and so things happen quickly. And the themes of Mark's gospel are bold, and the action is swift. And the themes are striking. And as relevant as they were for the people of Israel who first heard this story told, it is relevant to us today. It would seem for the Israelites that death-dealing forces had the upper hand. But the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, is the decisive signal in the Gospel of Mark that God's reign is now underway. Now, Jesus is neither a military conqueror nor a conventional king. So he's not military and he's not political. Mm -hmm. But rather he is a prophet, a healer, a rabbi. He's a prophet in the line of all the prophets of Israel that have come before him. And he's a, a rabbi, a teacher. And, um, and so this is, uh, points to a deeper understanding of what is happening. That Jesus is here to usher in a liberation of the people. A redemption of the people. A transformation of the people. Mark tells a story in a way that involves understanding an event or a person as a type of a previous event or person. So this happens a lot in the Gospels. They go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and pick up a story and then propel it forward in, in their text, right? Well, it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, like when we say Shonhai, Otania, have y'all heard of him? Shohai Otania, the great Chinese basket, uh, baseball player. Mm -hmm. He is the hottest thing on the market today. And we say he's the ne next Hank Aaron. That's how that works. This is a young Chinese man who is hitting the ball out of the park with such regularity, it, it just stuns everybody. So, and he just signed with the Dodgers. So, anyway, um, uh, or it's like, 
and y'all know this, that after Watergate, every, everything became gate. Anything that was controversial, anything that was scandalous, it was Monica gate, it was this gate, it was that gate, it's blank gate. I mean, fill in, fill in the political situation. And for many of the Bible's authors, including Mark, God acts in particular ways and so presents the present and future in terms and interpreted through the past. Mark may have been a good four, is all I have to say about that. <laughs> On the Enneagram. At least three of these patterns show themselves in this one passage that we just heard. First, Mark stops, starts the gospel with the beginning. The beginning. In our reading today, it's a little different. It says, here begins the gospel. Begins at the beginning. And if you hear, here begins the gospel, or in the beginning, you immediately, if you are a good Jew, hear the opening words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. The connection is clear. Mark is saying, behold, just as in the former days, God is beginning. But God is beginning right now. God is creating right now. God is remaking things right now. God is reforming the world right now. Mm -hmm. Second, the Israelites' exodus journey from the wilderness to the promised land is one of the most famous in all of scripture. Initially led by Moses, he passes the baton to his successor, Joshua. So, Mark in turns cast John as the new Joshua. The original wilderness, oh, excuse me, John casts, cast, Mark casts John as the new Moses, the original wilderness prophet who took the people out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and into new life in the promised land. But he doesn't go in to the promised land. Uh -huh. He doesn't cross the Jordan. Instead, he hands off things and leadership to Joshua, just as John the Baptist will hand over leadership to Jesus. And a third is the ancient prophets' accounts of God's promise to renew, restore, and return Israel to that promised land. Jesus, this is really great, Jesus, whose original name in Hebrew is Yeshua, is translated to Joshua. We say Jesus because we get it from the Greek. But the Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua. So, as Mark tells the story, John is a new Moses and Jesus is literally a new Joshua. In the book's opening sentences, the use of Holy One of God and of Gospel, interestingly, do not apply to the emperor, but to a peasant from Nazareth. And so is a subversive signal. We don't hear that because we're not ingrained in that culture. But anybody listening to that would have thought, oh my God, that's Caesar we're talking about there. No, not Caesar. This is a peasant rabbi, an itinerant peasant rabbi. 
Jesus gathers no army, but rather a small misfit band of ordinary men to be followers. Mark's use of the imperial terms is a direct rejection of the way of violence, war, and domination. Um, it's a slap in the face to Caesar's Pax Romana, Roman peace. Mark draws from the prophet Isaiah, effectively casting Jesus as the prince of peace. In Jesus of Nazareth, we find a new creation, a new exodus, a new restoration and fulfillment of God's promises to the people. Powerful. I caution you, however, not to think that the older narratives are being replaced by this new narrative that Mark offers. He's using these Hebrew scriptures to bring life and light and power to the story he is telling. And that the power of God expands over the creation, the beginning of creation, and into the future that we cannot predict. This is what Mark is trying to get us to understand. So, I lost my place. Okay. So don't think that we are replacing the Hebrew Scriptures, as some Christians try to do. In fact, on the contrary, these are crucial for illuminating who Jesus is and what Jesus is really about in Mark's day and in, the, in our own. So here we are, the second week of Advent, that centers on lighting a candle of peace, a light to shine against the growing shadows of conflict and war. Because this week's theme is peace, and because Mark is a radical gospel of peace, written during a time of war, because we live in a time of war today, it's a perfect, perfect week to contemplate the realities of conflicts in our lives, in our country, in the world, and in creation. That's what this week is for. This theme of peace is especially appropriate to Mark's wartime context, not to mention our own. So today, we can practice wonder by reflecting on peacemaking. You know, there's a difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. And we as Christians, we follow in the way of Jesus, are called to be peacemakers, to think about conflict and reconciliation, to contemplate what it would take for us to shift the world full of violence to one in which the lion lays down with the lamb. And how will we participate in this and what will it reveal to us about the wonder, wonderful mysteries of God? In a conversation with my clergy colleagues earlier this week, and then later reflected in our book club conversation on Wednesday evening, we talked about what makes for peace. And one of my colleagues pointed out that personal peace can evolve into a sweet sentimentality unless it is paired with a collective peace that focuses on doing justice which is all about love, and that love provokes peacemaking. Which, by the way, as I said, is different than peacekeeping. And then another asked, without justice, can we have peace? Interesting, isn't it? 
that at this same time, our Jewish siblings are celebrating Hanukkah, the festival of lights. We light four candles, they light eight. Hanukkah, which means dedication, commemorates the miracle of light that occurred when Judah rededicated the second temple in Jerusalem, the temple to Yahweh. According to the Talmud, which is one of Judaism's holy texts, the Seleucids left only one intact vial of oil, enough to light the temple's candelabrum for one day. But it miraculously burned for eight days. Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days to thank God and for the victory of light over darkness. Now, I want to help but wonder if early Christians had realized this deep connection between Hanukkah and Christmas, if the world today would be a more peaceful place. If there was this understanding that our whole culture of following Jesus comes out of that whole culture of the mystery and the miracle of God. That we're all woven together in this story. Still, God calls us to a greater peacemaking in our hearts, between each other, and among all people, and in creation. And Advent is a season to long for God's shalom, God's peace. And that is an idea far more than the cessation of conflict and war. It is more to do with the wholeness of being, with the full reign of God in us and through us. And Advent is a season for us to become lights of God's shalom in the darkness, along with our Jewish siblings. Now, once we've practiced wonder and contemplated the meaning of peace, we then are empowered to proclaim the good news of God's coming peace, God's radical peace that diverges greatly from what the world thinks is peace. Amid a war-torn and conflict-ridden world, we are invited to contemplate and see the wonder that comes in that contemplation of what it means to be people who are peacemakers. In the birth of Jesus, God inaugurated a new era of peace, reconciliation, and restoration. The Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, has come is coming and is here and arrives not on a war horse like Caesar but rather as a humble prophet, rabbi and healer, a prince of peace baptized in the river Jordan and that is why Mark's gospel is so powerful everything he writes in these first eight verses point to the whole life birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the redeeming work that is found in his life. So today, and through this week of peace, I want you to practice wonder by contemplating the deep meaning of peace for you personally, for those you encounter, for our country, for the world, and for all of creation. Do this one thing for me, will you? Wonder about the most important one thing you can do personally to bring peace into your life. 
and then God will show you how to bring peace to your corner of the world. As Simi said, the beginning, the beginning, friends, this is the beginning of radical peace, and it starts here, right now, with you and me. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.